Hi everyone, it's your host Janelle Moore and welcome to the official first episode of the Aspiring Abolitionists. Today we're going to be diving headfirst into the two policy proposals that are aimed to solve police brutality in America. Before we start our policy review, I want to remind everyone that legislation alone will not fix our problem. Long-term sustainable action is needed in the form of protest, outreach, education, conversation, and a host of other action items that can be found on a variety of social justice-focused Instagrams, Twitters, you name it, just let me know. This episode will focus on what Washington believes will help to restructure police departments to protect and serve all of their community, not just some. My favorite subject in school was history, and it still is. The main thing we hear about history is that it will always repeat itself. So how the heck did we get here? Policing has not always looked this way. Traditionally, policing was used on a community-needed basis, and officers only work part-time. Imagine police officers only working 10 to 15 hours a week, basically the work schedule of a freshman year college student. The primary focus was cracking down on gambling and prostitution. They were often coined as the Night's Watch. And no, Jon Snow was not a former police officer. As urbanization took hold of the U.S., the need for a more sophisticated safety system was needed. And the first modern police department was founded in Boston in 1838, marking the use of full-time officers for the first time. However, policing had a very different start in the South. Following the enactment of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, slave patrols sprung up all over the South in search of runaway slaves and the bounties attached to their heads. This created a different connotation regarding public safety. Who was actually being kept safe? More often, it was the white and land-owning males. In 1929, President Hoover appointed the Wickersham Commission to investigate law enforcement nationwide. They found appalling levels of corruption in how the police departments of the day police prohibition, noting that police corruption will not stop until those in higher level administrative positions and Congress do something to stop it. And that's how we got to 2020. So how do we hold police officers accountable? This is where qualified immunity comes in. We've seen far too many cases of police brutality in which police officers had no criminal charges brought against them. In the case of Breonna Taylor, it has been over 100 days and no charges have been filed. Qualified immunity gives police officers a different set of rules when it comes to our court system. As long as a police officer did not break a clearly established law, they cannot be charged for a crime. When I first read that, I said, were the rest of our clause not clearly established? A clearly established law requires precedent, meaning this situation has happened before, and the police officer in that situation was also punished. For example, when a police officer shot a 10-year-old child while trying to shoot a non-threatening family dog, the 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals held that the officer was entitled to qualified immunity because no earlier case held it was unconstitutional for a police officer to recklessly fire his gun into a group of children without justification. The court also declined to establish that rule. Not only was the officer left off the hook in that case, but the very same officer could act the same way again and would still be entitled to qualified immunity. Why is any of this important in understanding these two policy proposals? We have to know where we've gone in order to understand where we can go. Now, let's talk policy. To start, I'm going to compare the GOP Justice Act of 2020 bill and the Justice and Policing Act for the Democrats. 
to start with the banning of chokeholds. So the Democratic bill is named after George Floyd. It is officially called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020. And the GOP bill has a specific section in their bill named after George Floyd, most notably having to do with the National Police Misconduct Registry. To start with chokeholds, both of these bills address George Floyd directly in this section, crediting how his story influenced the need for chokehold legislation. Also, both of these bills limit funding if police departments do not adopt use of force standards banning chokeholds. This is a pretty consistent theme when it comes to putting these practices into place. In ways where oversight is not needed on a state and local level, the oversight has then been replaced by the withholding of funds on both the local, state, and federal level. When it comes to the National Police Misconduct Registry, the George Floyd and Walter Notification Act will create a national use of force data collection with a reporting requirement for state and local police departments that receive federal funding. A non-compliance with these reporting will also result in an eligibility of funds with a reduction of 5% every year until it reaches a 25% decrease in funding. The Breonna Taylor Notification Act is also involved in the Justice Act, the GOP approach, creating a public availability of data on no-knock warrants, the type of warrant that killed Breonna Taylor. It also creates limitations involving whether that data can be used in a case that has not been closed yet, and that data will not be publicly available. Furthermore, the Attorney General has to create a report every year with state and local departments creating the same data surrounding no-knock warrants. Again, with that whole composition of limitations with federal funding if this data has not been made available. And lastly, for the similarities between the GOP and DNC bill, is the closing the law enforcement consent loophole. Now, this section is titled the same way in the GOP and the Democratic bill, but I'm telling you the title is not as insidious as what it includes. This act is still legal in 31 states. In 31 states, it is not a criminal offense for any person acting under the color of the law to engage in a sexual act with an individual who is in detention under arrest or otherwise in the actual custody of a law enforcement officer. This is what the Closing the Law Enforcement Consent Loophole Act will do in both the GOP bill and the Democratic bill. They also state that consent is not a viable offense for the police officer or whoever else was acting under the color of the law, often considering and noting the power dynamics at play, considering the person is under arrest or otherwise in the actual custody of a law enforcement officer. That concludes the similarities before the bills, ending with the banning of chokeholds, a national police misconduct registry, and closing the law enforcement consent loophole. So that is with either bill passing, all three of those things will become law on the federal level. Now to dive into some of these differences. I'm going to begin with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, identifying some of the key differences between this bill and the GOP bill. From first glance, a lot of the differences include programming versus oversight and accountability. The Democratic bill is full of wonderful acts and programming targeted on increasing police training, increasing policies, data collection policies, and other reforms that quickly line up with a can't wait or other prison abolition requirements that people are calling for. On the other hand, the GOP bill focuses solely on this idea of oversight and how to make sure police departments are actually following through with what we're saying they're going to do. That involves a lot of funding, of funding limitations and also grant notifications from the Attorney General's office. Not only are they granting the ability for the Attorney General to give more grants, but also giving more power in the Attorney General to take those grants away if some of these limitations and guidelines are not being followed on the local and state level. 
So to start with qualified immunity reform, this is in the Holding Police Accountable in the Courts Act. So these have record reporting requirements for all preliminary investigations that were commenced, resolved, or in action for any police officer in any system. So these are all things that have to be reported and will be required for any police department, any police officers. Civilian boards are admitted administrative abilities and must be well-funded, can conduct hearings, policy-making authority, representative community diversity, and investigative authority slash subpoenas power. These civilian boards that the Democratic Party is trying to pilot will basically hold the police accountable in ways that the courts may not be able to, considering qualified immunity. By creating the reporting requirements and making qualified immunity a federal law, these civilian boards will be able to act on behalf of their communities to create systems in which police departments cannot be corrupt. Not only is it something that will be followed up by the court, but also in the same communities that are supposed to be policing. For the Law Enforcement Trust and Integrity Act, the Attorney General will assume a guardian mentality and with the help of law enforcement accreditation organizations and a community-based organization, they will help to create standards relating to use of force, data collection and transparency, youth justice in school safety, hiring, recruitment, and so much more. Also, this act will provide counseling services, including psychological counseling, for individuals and communities impacted by law enforcement misconduct. This is something that we like to call restorative justice and victim-based reform. By creating a focus on reforming the victim of a crime, you help to not only heal the community of the crime, but also that person of the trauma the crime may have been associated with. And lastly, the National Task Force on Law Enforcement Oversight and Federal Data Collection on Law Enforcement Practices. This will help to create, again, another publicly available database where we can continue to hold law enforcement accountable not only in our local areas, but in the state and nationally. Moving on to improving police training and policies. Now, surprisingly, a lot of this section has been built around data collection. If you haven't seen the news, facial recognition softwares are known to be wrong up to 90% of the time when they're identifying probable criminals in your area. Why is that? Um, well, the algorithm is racist. A lot of people don't realize that data scientists in and of itself are still biased because the data is created by humans. This data will be analyzed for disparities to highlight possible stop and frisk behaviors or inadequate traffic stop or interactions based on race that do not match the populist percentage of minorities in the community. This will also be moved into an annual report that will be supplied from the Director of Bureau of Justice Statistics of the Department of Justice, which will be provided to Congress and the public. By having this data available to us, we'll be able to identify police departments who are unfairly targeting minorities in their community. Some additional reforms include mandatory racial bias and intervention training for all federal agents and a ban of no-knock warrants solely in federal drug cases. But the federal government is prepared to withhold funds from local and state police departments who do not have a similar law effect banning no-knock warrants. Moving on to the Stop Militarizing Law Enforcement Act. For any single piece of military equipment that the police department will acquire after this bill is passed, city council has to approve the acquiring of military equipment. These weapons can only be used in counterterrorism measures, not in border security or drug criminal defenses. It must be made to the public no less than 30 days before the acquisition of the military equipment, and there will be an annual report on excess military property provided to the police department. 
Furthermore, crisis intervention teams will be employed and you will also have to hire law enforcement officers who are residents of the communities they serve. This basically means that there will be a certain percentage of the law enforcement officers coming from a specific area in which that policing is taking place. Now, moving on to a very hot topic, body cameras. I feel like we've been talking about body cameras for years and we're still passing laws to kind of make them required, not only on the local and state level, but also federally. So the DNC approach has been shown through the Federal Police Camera and Accountability Act. So this is a requirement for all federal agents to wear body cameras. You also have to give a notification of subject of recording. So basically you have to alert someone when they are being recorded. The body cameras cannot be used to gather information that is unrelated to response to a call for service. So this means that you must begin recording in the car once their emergency lights come on and through the full commission of the crime, whether that means through arrest or just the regular traffic stop. But at the commencement of that crime, the camera has to come off to ensure that no footage is being used that will go against anyone's constitutional rights. And lastly, this footage must be available for up to six months after it was taken, and it can be kept up to three years if it has evidentiary or sculptory value in an ongoing investigation, meaning that it can be kept up to three years if it has any type of value to a current or ongoing criminal investigation. The GOP approach is called the Body Warren Partnership Grant Program. These policies will be crafted by a commission, including prosecutors and organizations who are representation of crime victims, in addition to police officer advocates and union reps. This body camera data must be made public and all grants must be meticulously recorded and reported to Congress within 90 days of the money being received. Penalties for the failure to use body-worn cameras will include statutes and discipline guidelines created by the commission previously mentioned for those who intentionally misuse their body cameras. So for instance, people who cut off their body camera in the commission of a crime. Funding can be reduced up to 20% on a state level, but it will not exceed 25% in any fiscal year, following the same pattern of a reduction of 5% every single fiscal year. The thing I find the most interesting about the GOP bill, the Justice Act of 2020, is the creation of these two commissions. The first is a commission on the social status of black men and boys, the second commission being a National Criminal Justice Commission Act. So to break it down, the first commission on the social status of black men and boys will be comprised of 19 members, the majority coming from Senate, the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the Secretary of Education, Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, Secretary of Labor, and the President even gets to appoint two other members. With the creation of this 19-member commission, they will be in charge of conducting a systematic study of the conditions affecting Black men and boys, including homicide rates, arrests and incarceration rates, disparate income and wealth levels, and school performance in all grade levels, including post-secondary education and college, mental health, violence, poverty, and so much more. This commission can also deliver recommendations and proposals of measures to remedy or alleviate the underlying causes of the conditions described. Each member of this commission can only miss two meetings before a review of their membership is created, and an annual report will be created for Congress during the first commission meeting. The report shall address the current conditions expecting black men and boys and make recommendations to address these issues. This report will be submitted to the president, the Congress, members of the president's cabinet, and the chairs of the appropriate committees of jurisdiction, and it will be publicly available on a centralized federal website. 
no person on this commission will be compensated for their time. Now for a little background on the National Criminal Justice Commission Act. There hasn't been a comprehensive study since the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice was established in 1965. In 1965, we produced an 18-month study entitled The Challenge of Crime in a Free Society, which contained 200 specific recommendations on all aspects of the criminal justice system. This commission will create a comprehensive review of the criminal justice system. They will submit a report to the President and Congress with recommendations for federal criminal justice reform, and they will also disseminate these findings and supplemental guidance to the federal government, as well as to state, local, and tribal governments. They have an 18-month deadline for this report, and it must have unanimous consent on any recommendations. Public access to the recommendations will be available, and consultation with non-government officials like probation officers, criminal justice, community-based organization leaders, and formerly incarcerated individuals are required. There's also going to be a review on the sentencing structure in the U.S., which was greatly changed by the 1994 Crime Bill, which enforced mandatory minimums and three structure outlaws on a federal level. The membership of this commission will include government official appointees, including the president who will elect a co-chairperson of the commission. The co-chairperson will appoint six members based on the political party of the president, six other members who are the opposite party of the president, then the Senate majority and House minority chairs appoint the other co-chairperson, as well as those who have experience of the criminal justice system and law enforcement officers, but there are quotas on their involvement. The administration of this commission involves government employees not being compensated, while non-government employees will be compensated at a fair rate. Access to most information surrounding the topics, including works in the Library of Congress, the Department of Justice, State Department, and the Office of National Drug Control Policy. This commission will get a $7 million for fiscal year 2021 and $7 million for fiscal year 2022, with the limitations on this funding being that nothing can be used for international travel. The end of the commission will happen 60 days after the date on which the commission submits the report required under Section 705C, and which that is when the 18-month deadline kicks in. The Justice Act of 2020 and the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act 2020 both do a great job at scratching the surface of this problem. However, they both have holes. Following the blocking of the Justice Act by Senate Democrats, the Justice and Policing Act has passed through the House and is waiting in the Senate. Neither of these bills have all the necessary components to truly affect change on this level, but I'm hoping for a bipartisan solution in the future. A combination of these key components will create legislation that not only outlines possible action steps for police departments, but mechanisms for the public to hold them accountable beyond 2020, laying the groundwork for a society in which we can trust that all of us will be protected and served. Thank you so much for tuning in for the official first episode of the Aspiring Abolitionists. See you guys next week and let's talk policy.